and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 26. I'm Nick Dixon and I'm joined by the thinking man's Ernie Wise, Mr. Toby Young. Coming up, Scott Adams gets cancelled for his remarks on race relations, Shemima Begum gets cancelled for being Shemima Begum, and school students get cancelled for disrespecting Britain's holy book, the Koran. Plus our top stories of the week with Will, and of course, Peak Woke. But Toby, you wanted to start with some big news that you were on the debut show of a certain Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yes, I felt very honoured. Um, so Jacob Rees-Mogg had his debut on GB News yesterday. Um, he's going to be doing a show Monday to Thursday from eight till nine. And um, they had a stellar lineup, uh, not including me. So they had, um, I think they kicked off kicked off with an interview between him and Lee Anderson. Then he brought on David Davis, both discussing the um, Windsor framework, Rishi's uh, Brexit deal. Um, and then they got their panel on. I think they're going to have panelists discussing various stories each night. And the panelists were Stephen Pound, former Labour MP for Ealing, and David Starkey. And and then they had me on to talk about um, the uh, censorship of uh, Ian Fleming's Bond novels. So pretty stellar lineup. And um, I thought Jacob did incredibly well. He was very slick. It was as though he'd been a professional broadcaster for 25 years. He didn't get the impression at all that he was a novice. And um, uh, it, it, towards the end of the show, he really seemed to be enjoying himself too. He was ad-libbing. He was doing funny voices. He was kind of, you know, adrenalized, which live TV can do to you. Um, uh, but it was great to see him, you know, having a good time. Um, and um, the, the, the amazing thing, Nick, is that for the first time, I think, in my life, this morning, I got a text message um, from Jacob. When I say the first time in my life, I, I don't think this has ever happened to me before, as in no host of a TV show I've been on before has ever texted me the following day to say, thank you for being on my show. So that was, uh, he's a class act. That was great, great to get. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I remember um, Ivo Graham, who was a comedian who went to Eton, which is quite a rare thing. And he, he had a bit, I remember in one of his shows, talking about how he had to write thank you letters after every Christmas <laughs> present. So this must be an Eton thing. This is why these people do so well, Toby. They're just so well-bred, writing thank yep. you letters. I, I, you'll probably get a whole letter in the post with like a wax seal, I expect, for Mark. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was very good. And it, seemed, it seemed to me like he might have even had some TV training because he was doing gestures that he doesn't normally do. He was very high energy, like you say, and he was very funny. And I just thought it was great TV to have you, Starkey, Mog, on one show. Very impressive. I think David Davis was also on earlier. Just very, you know, hard hitters. All I mean, that's someone's nightmare show, obviously. You, you, you lot together. It's like some lefties worst nightmare that's a whole twitter thread right like, there yeah, din dinner party from hell um yeah well i thought it was excellent it, but it, and it also it made the news so he in his opening monologue he discussed rishi's brexit deal and he said that um uh, we should we, sh we shouldn't pop the champagne corks until the dup have embraced it and he was holding fire uh before he knew how the dup were going to react because if they're not on board then it ain't going to work uh and that's now leading the telegraph as we speak so gb news making the headlines i love the idea of mog just at gb news now but just soft power just controlling everything from behind the scenes i i, I control everything from gb news now i don't even need to be in the cabinet I, you know what i mean he's got more influence now but i'm I'm worried I'll get pushed out because there's so many of these hard-hitting, big, big-name ex-Tories now. You know what I mean? Is there going to be any room for just little old ND with 
with the Mogs and the Portillos. Yeah, I, think he's, and... He's, I think yeah, he's quite a big get, isn't he, for GB? He's the first, I think, ex-cabinet minister, as far as I know, who they've got to host a program. I mean, it's become a kind of retirement home for even current serving Conservative MPs as well as ex-Conservative MPs. But I think he's the first ex-cabinet minister. Yeah, and they've also got Choppers, haven't they, from Choppers Politics, which is a podcast I really like. And he's he's from The Telegraph, Christopher Hope. And yeah. now, is it is it Hope? Yeah, and he's now going to be the, I think, head of politics, political head or yes. something. Yeah. So that's quite a big get as well. And it's quite annoying for me because one of my tactics before shows like Headliners was just to listen to his podcast and repeat whatever people said on there. So it's going to be hard <laughs> because he's going to be on GB now. But yeah, so then again, he's from The Telegraph, so maybe they are. Do you think they're pigeonholing themselves a bit too much into this sort of centre-right world? You know, I've been getting the impression, I don't know about you, that GB News have been making more of an effort to get on lefties than before. Um, they're trying to, you know, uh, perhaps avoid any... Ofcom complaints by trying to be a bit more politically impartial. Um, so they want. I think. I think um, I have a shot at becoming one of the regular panelists on Jacob's show. But I think it depends upon finding probably a left of centre woman um, who they can put me up against, um, not just another cishet white male with Tory views. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, before you said woman, I was thinking I could be, come on, pretend to be a lefty, although they obviously know by now I'm not, it's not going to work. I was just thinking, yeah, maybe you could be a regular one. That would be good. But they've always made an effort to get balance. It's just that people won't always come on. So I don't, I don't know if that part is new, but what, the only thing that seems new to me is that it's just all former Tory MPs or current ones, as you say. But anyway, all right, that's Mog dealt with. So what I think you should watch Toby on that show, 8 p.m., isn't it? When's he doing it? Eight till nine, Mondays to Thursdays. Okay. Well, he's doing quite a lot. Okay. And we wanted to briefly touch on the so-called Windsor framework. We won't spend too long on it because it's fairly dry. But this is the, the Northern Ireland deal that Rishi has secured. But we don't know what the DUP thinks still, last I've heard. And so they're a big sticking point. But there are three main points to the deal. It, one, it ensures the free flow of goods. So there'll be these green lane products for domestic sales in Northern Ireland and red lanes for the ones that are being exported to the Republic of Ireland. And they've got this live data sharing between the UK and EU to stop smuggling. Then there's a single market where Northern Ireland was under EU rules for state aid, VAT and alcohol duty. So that will change that. Now it'll be British regulations instead. The government wanted Northern Ireland to be able to choose between Britain and EU regulations, but EU is not accepting that. But only 3% of EU single market rules will apply to Northern Ireland. No one knows why it's 3%. But... Um, so the, the Northern Ireland, some people are worried they, they won't be able to take advantage of post-Brexit reforms. The other big part to it, the third part, is that under Johnson's deal, uh, Northern Ireland would be, uh, it, it was going to have to accept all EU law and be under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Uh, and that was a big, that could be a problem for people in the DUP. They do have chances to periodically vote against it all. But this, this is a red line for the EU because they're saying, but well, if you're in the single market, you have to be under the jurisdiction of the ECJ. And it's a kind of Norway deal. So we've heard about the Norway deal before. Now Northern Ireland would be in a similar position to Norway, member, you know, in the single market, but not an EU member. But this is the most controversial thing. So I don't know if that's all going to get past the DUP. Last I heard, they were still a bit miffed that Sunak hadn't consulted them earlier. And he's just sort of presenting this thing to them last minute. you know, And then they can just say, well, we're not happy with that. But they might just say it just for the sake of it. But that's the last I've heard. I may be out of date by the time this comes out. DUP may have accepted it. Certainly the Tory rebels seem to have accepted it. Any comment, Toby? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it seems to... 
have um, won over most people. I mean, Jacob was being quite enthusiastic about it, even though he was holding fire on final verdict. David Davis, who he had on, was incredibly enthusiastic about it. Um, and he said that, you know, he, he admired Rishi for having pulled off what Boris couldn't. And that was the reason he backed Rishi in the leadership campaign last summer, because he thought he was the cleverest one. And here he was proving that he was indeed the cleverest one, because who other than he could have pulled off this incredible diplomatic coup. And, you know, um, the EU does seem to have moved further conceded more than it did um, to Boris when Boris secured his Brexit deal. It feels like this is a better deal than the one Boris got. Um, Northern Ireland, whilst not entirely being and a sort of uh, indistinguishable, ineradicable part of the UK, nonetheless, it's closer now to being part of the UK than it was under Boris's Brexit deal. And Boris's strategy, seemingly to just renege on the deal, um, and then, you know, insist the EU give him everything he wants, you know, in due course, even though that would have meant that this is debatable, breaking an international treaty, that was, um, that never felt like a particularly winning strategy. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not across all the legal details, but certainly if um, the EU believed that we had broken a, a treaty binding under international law, that wouldn't have kind of like helped us get back on the right foot with the EU. Anyway, I mean, I, I, I'm not really across the details to say definitively whether this is a good deal or not, but it certainly feels a bit better than what we had, a bit closer to what the Brexiteers had in mind. And I think for that reason, a lot of the leading Brexiteers, including Steve Baker, have really enthusiastically welcomed it. But it remains to be seen whether it wins over everybody in the kind of Eurosceptic camp. Yeah, Baker's even said this is closes a seven-year chapter in his life and that he had a breakdown and all these kind of things. And, and now this is, he can finally sort of relax. He, he, he was borderline euphoric about it. And other people even compared it to the Good Friday Agreement. I think maybe Lee Anderson said that. So yeah, people are saying this is an amazing deal, but have to just wait and see what the DUP say because they're, they're, they're the ones that can scupper it, I suppose. But maybe yeah, Rishi it, has pulled off something. Yeah, I think it was Baker who, who compared it to the Good Friday Agreement. You know, he said, I... I I don't want to sound like I'm engaging in hyperbole, but I think this is um, a level of statesmanship on a par with the Good Friday Agreement, which was quite an accolade. I mean, you know, you have to take everything Conservative MPs say with a pinch of salt, either because they want to remain in the government or because they're hoping to be promoted and included in the government. But um, yeah, it does. It does seem like this is a better deal than um, people were expecting, and uh, I think the the fact that Stormont will seemingly have a veto over any changes to the EU laws that still affect Northern Ireland is, I would imagine, quite reassuring. And that was the kind of rabbit, the Stormont break. Sounds like a really fast um, shooting break, doesn't it? The Stormont break. I'd buy one of those uh, in a secondhand car showroom. But anyway, um, it feels like that was a that was a big concession. That was the rabbit. If anything's going to win over the DUP, it's that um, because they'll effectively, if they can combine with other unionist parties, have a have a veto over any changes to EU law. There would seem to be a sort of grey area, though, which is uh, the ultimate the, the, the ultimate court deciding, you know, legal disputes will be the European Court of Justice. But 
Stormont will have a veto. So that was a, seemed like a slightly grey area. Well, he, where does ultimate authority rest on you know yeah. EU laws affecting the Northern Ireland? Maybe that I don't know, haven't read the small print. Well, the small print in the that one. in the Times is that, yeah, Brussels has to give Britain notice of future EU regulations intended for Northern Ireland, and then the government can lodge an objection. Or the Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly could put the issue to a vote to delay the regulation. But then also, yeah, Stormont has the power still in the original protocol to approve or reject the arrangements in periodic votes, the first one in 2024. So, yeah, there are some sort of checks and balances. I mean, just, just sort of taking a step back, it was always going to be difficult to square this particular circle because um, if Northern Ireland um, uh, exits the EU becomes just indistinguishable in the rules and regulations, the laws it has to follow from the rest of the United Kingdom, then that will inevitably create some kind of barrier between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. Um, and uh, uh, But that would be contrary to what's been agreed under the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so unless – it was, how do you reconcile – the Brexit vote whilst wanting to preserve the Good Friday Agreement. If you can't have a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, um, how can you have you know complete regulatory alignment between Northern Ireland and the UK? So this feels like you know the best attempt yet to square that circle, but inevitably it's going to have to be a compromise because those two things are irreconcilable. Okay. Well, that wasn't our most comedic bit ever, but it was quite important to go over the detail. And it's not that surprising, is it, in a way that Rishi would be more competent in negotiation than Boris. But we might have people messing saying, no, no, he's sold out to the EU and you don't understand. Because I admit I don't fully understand the sort of broader picture. I just basically read, read up on the facts. So let's move on to a quite shocking story about the... Quran, so I'm sure you saw this, pupils were suspended in Wakefield for smudging the Quran with some dirt. So this happened when an autistic kid lost a bet in a Call of Duty game, and they said, we have to bring a Quran into the school. So he brought it in, and then they were reading it aloud on the tennis court, and some other lads knocked it out of their hands, and it, it, it received a smudge and maybe a mild bending of the cover. And um, Labour councillor Usman Ali says... It was desecrated, although the head teacher said there was no malicious intent. This didn't stop the police, though, from visiting the school and liaising with the school and saying that minor damage was caused to the text. And so this 14-year-old autistic kid was suspended. He received death threats, but none of the people issuing the death threats had any punishment, and his mother said they don't want to, and they just want him to be left alone. And Tom Slater asked, in spite what what century is this, I think we can ask what country is this, reasonably. I mean, is this an Islamic country? I mean, nothing against Saudi Arabia, but I didn't think we lived there. And what's so silly is the Quran is now the holy book of this country, but not because anyone actually necessarily or the people involved believe in it and respect it other than Muslims and and perhaps believers in general. I mean, I respect all Abrahamic religions as a Christian, but the fact that we're treating the Quran so differently from the Bible or anything else, and not really, like I say, my point is not because, because the people doing this actually worship Allah, but because they're afraid and because leftism is the religion of the country and a terror of offending Muslims. I mean, that's my take on it, Toby. What do you think? Yeah, um, I don't disagree with any of that. It is um, absolutely shocking. Uh, I thought the most shocking thing was the meeting at the school in which, I think it was at the school, in which the 14-year-old autistic boy's 
mother um, was kind of paraded by community leaders uh, dressed as a kind of Muslim penitent. So she was wearing a veil, her head was bowed, and she essentially pleaded for clemency. Um, Please don't murder me or my son. Please stop issuing death threats. It was unintentional. We're very sorry about it. He's got a diagnosis of autism. That that I thought was extraordinary. That um, that she, that she has to go through this ordeal in order to protect her own life and protect the life of her child. Wow, you're right. I didn't see this before. Yeah, in this picture, yeah, she has a veil, head covered in mute. Someone's tweeted as though she were herself being shamed for blasphemy. Absolutely insane. It's just insane that that could happen. 2023 in England. I mean, so we're 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 a Muslim country now. I mean, I don't think that's hyperbole. It's, it's it. I think I think the I think there's a I think it's slightly more nuanced than that. I read a take um, by Ed West, who is um, a conservative with a Substack, a journalist, um, but very thoughtful, very good. I'm actually it's one of the few Substacks I'm actually a paying subscriber to. But he said he wrote a book about immigration and what the long-term consequences were for British society of such high levels of immigration, um, you know, in the post-war period, particularly under Tony Blair, but hasn't stopped after that. He said that one of the consequences of making a multicultural society work, um, enabling different groups from very different, with very different heritage, cultural backgrounds, different religious beliefs, different senses of what's sacred, what's profane. The way to make it work is not to scrap blasphemy laws, which is what we've done officially, but to create numerous unofficial blasphemy laws. So all these groups have certain sacred protected values that it's become taboo to trample upon. And one of them is to in any way disrespect the Quran or to take the name of the prophet in vain or to reproduce images of him and so forth. Um, That's one kind of cluster of blasphemy laws. But it's also true that, you know, you can't invoke the Holocaust in vain either. Look what happened to Andrew Bridget um, when he he said that uh, he supposedly quoted or maybe he did quote uh, what a, a cardiologist saying that uh, we, we all know the story comparing the rollout of the vaccines to saying it was the worst crime against humanity since the Holocaust. That was that was to seemingly trivialize the Holocaust, invoke it to score a kind of political point in the culture war or whatever, and that's taboo too. Um, uh, and you know, just as there, just as just as it, just as you know, um, there are now kind of quite broad definitions of what constitutes anti-Semitism, particularly in British universities. So there are very broad definitions of what constitutes Islamophobia. Now, it may be that there aren't any equivalent taboos, no equivalent unofficial blasphemy laws for Christians. That's true, I think. But there are probably Hindu gods and values and holy books and relics that you would get into trouble for in certain communities for, you know, disrespecting too. So I don't think it's what we, you know, we've become a Muslim caliphate. I think it's as a consequence of quite high levels of migration in the post-war period. And in all, we've become a kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural multi-religious society. And in order to make that work, in order to enable us to get along, the consequence is that we have this kind of cluster now of blasphemy laws. And it's also true of, you know, um, 
LGBTQTI, whatever it is, plus, um, you know, there are certain things you can't say. You can't make light now of the rainbow flag. Look at the trouble that Lawrence Fox got into when he did that. There's a whole kind of, you know, uh, it's 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 um, it's become almost taboo at universities to say that we don't need to decolonize the curriculum um, or that, you know, British universities aren't kind of riddled with white supremacy. Um, it's become taboo to deny that Britain is a systemically racist society. All of this, all of these taboos, all of these kind of lines we can't cross. I think think Ed West has a, a, a good point that they are the long-term consequence of immigration and Britain becoming a multicultural society. Free speech has inevitably suffered. Um, uh, and, you know, our own Christian history and heritage has, has been deprioritized, has been downplayed, has become less important in order to preserve order and to enable us all to get along and not end up in a civil war in the streets. A few things on that. Firstly, you've suddenly become more anti-immigration. When I was making these points to you, that immigration <laughs> is going to damage free speech and our traditions like civil liberties and free speech, you were more optimistic about immigration. But now you're reading Ed West, which you're paying for instead of my Substack. You've gone all, you've changed your tune because of Ed West. He is very good. On your points though, yes, what it is, therefore, you're saying is more of a woke blasphemy laws, which ha- which an umbrella which incorporate many blasphemies against wokeness, which is saying anything you know vaguely, well, and not and no one thinks being anti-Semitic should be allowed, but but you know saying anything like you say against LGBT, against any of the woke uh, sacred cows, rather than it being specifically Islam, which I accept. But as you also said, the fact that Christianity doesn't fit into that shows how disingenuous it is. Because it'd be one thing to say, we're multicultural, we're ultra-sensitive, we're ultra-woke, so everyone has to have their values respected. But we know that Christians don't. We know that Kate Forbes is in trouble for her Christian beliefs, and there's a test to see if Humza Yusuf is in trouble for his Muslim beliefs, which are basically the same The same point. They both don't really approve of gay marriage. But will he get away with it, dodging that vote where she hasn't got away with it? Let's see. That is a test, because mm. so far, that proves that it's... It'd be bad enough, in my opinion, to have such a censorious culture. But the fact that Christians and, like like you say, our sort of heritage of this country is not part of it, that really shows them for what they are, doesn't it? Which is disingenuous leftist scum. Well, Well, I mean, of course, there's a degree of hypocrisy there. But I think it reflects the fact um, that we as a society have, have never had a kind of grown-up debate about how to integrate all these new arrivals into our society. Uh, to what extent should we be trying to assimilate people? To what extent should we be respecting their cultural heritage? Um, and so all these different taboos and unofficial blasphemy laws have sprung up um, as a consequence. Um, uh, and um, you know, maybe the reason historically marginalized groups, non-white groups, um, uh, enjoy kind of more cultural authority, more police protection, and the rest of it than Christians is 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 you know it's one of the kind of intellectual consequences of accommodating ourselves to mass migration. But um, I'm not I'm not I'm not I don't think I'm changing my tune exactly. I'm not saying it was all a disaster and a mistake. I also think there are lots of benefits, but I do think that a loss of uh, a, a decline in respect for free speech um, is is um, a consequence of this kind of disordered, unplanned, chaotic immigration, including a lot of illegal immigration that's taken place 
over the past 75 years and the consequence of us not actually thinking carefully about it and having a plan. And I think obviously the plan should be uh, that we end up not as a multicultural society, but as a multi-ethnic society with one culture. And um, and it should broadly be the culture that was here 75 years ago. But um, getting to that point now, I think it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, totes not going to happen. And Priti Patel just came out and basically said, you know, we need to not, multiculturalism has failed without using those exact words. It's pretty much what she was saying to me anyway, and a story we covered last night on Headliners. But I'm sure you'll agree with me, Toby. The only solution is bring back Christian blasphemy laws. It was naive to get rid of them. When we got rid of them, there were people making speeches saying, you know, happily, we don't need these anymore. And I can't remember the exact words, but some prominent people were basically saying Christianity will still thrive. And we luckily, we don't need these sort of penalties. Turns out we do. When you get rid of the Christian blasphemy laws, the whole culture just degenerates. We should assert our culture. Go, just, just be a Christian theocracy of some sort. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure that is the solution. I prefer I knew you fewer agree. blasphemy laws, not more. Um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, it, it's a kind of strange echo of the brouhaha over the alteration of Roald Dahl's books and now to a lesser extent, the alteration of Ian Fleming's books. I mean, these are, in a way, Roald Dahl is, um, he's a sort of, he's sort of emblematic of our secular humanist culture. And people objected to the revisions to the books uh, on the grounds that it was a kind of desecration of these cherished children's books, which we've all grown up reading and which are a kind of integral part of you know, what we think of as the kind of our secular humanist shared culture. Um, but, but, but yeah, the police didn't get involved. <laughs> there weren't these meetings in which the sensitivity readers had to appear heads bowed to kind of do penitence and abase themselves at the feet of, <laughs> of the anti-wokesters who got upset about this. Right. And I don't believe there are any death threats against puffin sensitivity readers, were there? <laughs> So yeah, not so. not quite the same. But you are right. I mean, I even use the word desecration. Maybe I shouldn't have used the word as a Christian, but in my piece about about it, it's actually in my piece about James Bond. But I said the the, the Roald Dahl books. It was a kind of desecration. And you're right that it would no one would care if if you did it to the Bible, but doing it to Roald Dahl's books, you were sort of offending our secular yeah. uh, one of our secular texts. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we we've, we've dealt with that shocking story. Let's move on to another controversial story. Shemima Begum who has been in the news again. She's a very uh, popular celebrity. And, of course, the question is, should she come back to this country to face trial or just have her citizenship revoked and sort of binned off? And a few things here. One is how mad liberal commentators have gone about this and how it's become this hill for them to die on. That Narinda lady, I'm sure she's a very nice person. She occasionally contributes to GB News. She said in a tweet, someone was criticizing Begerman, and she goes, she's flawed, I agree. Flawed? Is she flawed? Is that the right word? Flawed for a terrorist who showed no remorse for her actions? To me, flawed is Dominic Raab allegedly throwing a pret tomato across a room because he's stressed. That's flawed. I'm flawed. We're all flawed. But Shemima Begum is worse than flawed. That's one thing. But it's become this strange hill for them to die on. The BBC has to have their podcasts about it. And they want to re rehabilitate her image. We're told it's racist to, to attack her, even though Jack Letts, white person, had his citizenship revoked and no one cared uh, and I didn't care either. But there is this argument from people like Peter Hitchens even and Lord Sumption saying, you know, she should face trial. We can't just get rid of her citizenship. She should be brought into this country and, you know, be, be dealt with by the justice system when I say face trial is what I mean. But 
people don't are not that open to that, or many of us, because I think I think what it is is even though in a, in a rational world that's what should happen. If we had a functioning judicial system, that's what should happen. But we sort of don't. We don't have. We don't feel that she'll actually be dealt with in any appropriate way. We feel she'll probably get a, an easy ride and a reality show. She'll probably be in my so you've been cancelled house in in my reality show. And so is it, Toby, just that people are saying, are sort of welcoming this one win for sort of non-libness, basically, that people are so sick of the illegal immigration and so on and all the, the way the country's falling apart, that actually we're not going to lose sleep over Shamara Begum losing her citizenship, even if maybe she shouldn't in a, in a rational, in a totally fair system. That's my take, that people are just going, well, we're not going to lose sleep over this because it's actually a rare sort of win in a sense. Yeah, I I feel sympathetic to the kind of Lord Sumption, Peter Hitchens point of view. And I'll tell you why. I mean, what what's striking to me is when the when the kind of liberal human rights left say, you know, it would be cruel to deprive her of her citizenship because she was only a child when she left the country and joined ISIS. And we can't, you know, punish children um in perpetuity for mistakes they've made, we have to be a bit more forgiving than that. Um, I'm all, my, my first thought is, well, hang on a second. If a black footballer turns out to have said something homophobic in a WhatsApp group when he was 14, you're all for, you know, um, uh, casting him out and um, depriving him of his livelihood and punishing him for his childhood mistake. Why are you making an exception for her? But I think actually he shouldn't be punished for that mistake. Um, I think that, you know, what people say or do when they're children, um, uh, we should be prepared to um, forgive them for. I'm not saying she shouldn't be punished, um, but I'm not sure that punishing her by depriving her of British citizenship in perpetuity isn't a bit too harsh. It seems a bit disproportionate. Um, and I would like her to eventually um, be given a second chance, just as I wouldn't want to permanently condemn and cast out a footballer for having said something homophobic when he was 14. Um, feels like a, a manifestation of cancel culture. I think there should be you know, a statute of limitations on how long you can be held account for for, for, for something you've said as a child or done as a child. Um, uh, and I also do think that, you know, she's our responsibility. She's our problem. You know, for a variety of reasons, we've created her. We are responsible for her. And to wash our hands of her and say, you know, she's the responsibility now of the Afghan authorities or the Pakistani authorities, um, that seems like a kind of renunciation of what should be our responsibility. I mean, I, can, I think the argument, I think the best argument for not granting her, her citizenship back is that it will act as a deterrent for others who are thinking of joining terrorist death cults overseas. You know, if you do that, you know, you're not going to be allowed back in the country. You will be renouncing your citizenship. But how big a deterrent would that really be? I mean, if, you know, if, if, if you're not deterred by the prospect of, you know, going to jail for the rest of your life um, uh, or being marooned in a kind of prison camp indefinitely, then I'm not sure that that would, that would, that is much of an additional deterrent anyway. So I think, I think, you know, on balance, um, we probably should uh, uh, bring her back, put her on trial and then punish her, but not a lifetime sentence. A couple of things on that then. 
your footballer point is good because it it proves my point, and I'm not even necessarily saying I'm just I'm just gauging public feeling. As you say, the footballer would be punished in the woke world. His career would probably be ended. Whereas people are just celebrating this. Not celebrating is too strong, but because we know that we know it wouldn't be the same. Like you say, if we thought the footballer would not be punished for the the WhatsApp the hypothetical WhatsApp message you're talking about, then we could say, okay, let's let's bring Shamara Begum back. But because we know he would, and we know that everything's so woke, we just think, you know, why not? You know, everything's so broken and woke anyway. Why not have, you know, maybe it is mob rule, but why not? We don't care about begging, basically, because it would be a different rule. There wouldn't be BBC podcasts about giving this poor footballer a chance, as you say. So, you know, it's it's not equal. So the footballer wouldn't end up with a show on, wouldn't end up on the front cover of the Times weekend magazine either. No, with like a makeover. So that, that's kind of what I'm saying. Whereas it's sort of, yeah, if everyone was going to be treated equally and we had, a, we still had a normal culture with, with, with justice, but we don't. So I, it's almost like, well, we may as well just bin off Begum then and chuck her in the sea. That's kind of, I feel the public sentiment. But, and, and as, as to your age point, Michael Deacon wrote a piece in the Telegraph. Yes, Shamayo Begum was only 15. So what? He said, you know, I did bad things at 15. But at no point did I flee the country to join the world's most notorious terror group. Was I just unusually mature for my age? <laughs> you know, so it's a fair point. You know, she didn't do a normal hiding. She's not, as Narinda said, flawed. She is a terrorist who showed no remorse for horrific actions. And here's one more point I forgot to mention. Sajid Javid said he had seen things in private that were far worse. And the things she said mm. in public were bad enough. So his argument was, now, of course, he was relying on the if you'd seen what I'd seen gambit mm. of intelligence which can lead to things like an iraq war so it's not necessarily reliable but he did say if you see what i've seen you'd realize she's a security threat so there is also that element but do you not give that any credence well you know there'll be ways of mitigating that risk put her in a high security prison um and um limit her contact with um with people from the outside i don't know I, then I, we're paying for it forever me- because of libs like you toby <laughs> Well, who else should pay for her? Yeah, all right. Well, fair enough. I think we've given sort of both sides of that. I probably didn't articulate my side that well, but I still think I'm right. But it wasn't necessarily my side. I was just trying to give that side, which is just who's going to really lose sleep over it. Well, some people, some libs. Um, Do you want to do Scott Adams, Toby? This is a very interesting topic, and it's quite complicated, but I'm sure people have seen Scott Adams has been cancelled, the latest person to be cancelled. You might say justifiably, I don't know, but he quoted this Rasmussen poll, which basically said 47% of, of black people said it was either not okay to be white or they weren't sure. And they responded to this question, is it okay to be white? Controversial loaded question because we know it is also a political phrase, a bit like all lives matter. It's it's not something people necessarily just take at face value, though they probably should because it's all a bit silly, isn't it? You should just probably get better take that phrase at face value. And he said that, okay, if that's the case, the only logical conclusion is to get away from black people if you're white because they hate you and he called them a hate group which he admitted was, was hyperbole so he's sort of making a deliberately controversial point he always has these sort of plans he's quite good at getting attention it's all very deliberate did he know he'd be cancelled seemingly he did he's sort of implying he did he's sort of implying that he paid the price of free speech he said the price of free speech turns out to be very high even higher than eggs and he's basically done this he sort of claims to widen the conversation or create a conversation. And what it seems is he's arguing no one's actually disagreed with him who's saying he should be cancelled. He's lost all his Dilbert cartoons, have gone out of every newspaper. The book deal he had is cancelled. Everything's cancelled. Basically, total cancellation. And he's going to do it on his own website. And he seems to be saying, well, no one's actually disagreed with my point. They're just sort of disagreeing with the fact that I said it. 
that you're just not allowed to say it. And, and he was saying that he was using race as a proxy for class. And what's interesting is he's a big lefty who actually said things like, we should give reparations through taxation. And he also says black people are in this position because of systemic racism against them. So he's essentially saying because of racism against black people and historical injustice, they're in poor neighborhoods struggling. But because they're in poor neighborhoods struggling and because the media has stoked up hatred and made them hate white people, the logical conclusion as a group, statistically, if this poll is correct, is to move away from them, not treat them differently as individuals, but as a group on a group, just looking at stats, that's what you should do logically. And he's also pointed out that all the lib media, the white liberals in media, also don't live in the inner cities, and they are actually acting upon this. So his claim is that no one's actually disagreed with him. They've just called him racist anyway and counseled him almost just for saying it. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I've just been puzzling over why he said it and whether he was in full possession of all his faculties when he said it. I know he's, you know, subsequently doubled down and defended what he said. But I, when I, when the story broke, I watched a bit of the video. I didn't watch the whole thing. But he sort of, he, he begins by saying that he's always identified as an African-American, almost. And I, I, I was thinking, is he kind of um, taking the mickey here? of people, you know, of biological males who identify as women? Is he making a satirical point saying that, well, if it's okay for biological men to claim to be women, is it okay for me as a white man to claim to be black? And I thought he was going to go on to make that point, but he didn't. It was as though we want, he wanted us to take at face value his claim that he's always identified, always thought of himself as an African-American. So that was like a bizarre way to begin this monologue. Um, and then he talks about the Rasmussen poll. And when he cited that poll, I thought, well, first of all, it was actually, it, it was, as you say, it was almost 50% who either said, no, it's not okay to be white or who didn't know. Um, uh, but the percentage saying, they didn't that they didn't think it was okay to be white it was like it was like twenty seven or something or possibly even lower, maybe less than half of of the people he was putting into this bracket and as you say, you know is it okay to be white that's become a kind of culture war trope, and people who say it's okay to be white might in the minds of some of the respondents be put in the same bracket as people who say all lives matter uh, as opposed to black lives matter, and it feels like you know the sort of thing that people in the trenches in the culture war would say in response to people promoting critical race theory or Black Lives Matter activists. So it may, be, may not be something that they really believe. It may not be an expression of hostility or hatred towards white people based on their skin color. It may just be that they are, as you said, you know, um, taking sides in the culture war. Um, so it seemed like a bit of a leap for me to go from the Rasmussen poll to saying, well, white people, if you want to protect yourselves, get out of black neighborhoods, have nothing to do with black people from now on. And, I, and it, 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 to me, it felt like it was all just a bit unhinged and slightly nonsensical and an odd thing for a self-professed lefty and someone with such a successful career, supposedly with such a 
nuanced understanding of kind of modern workplace etiquette as expressed in the Dilbert cartoons. It was like, is he on drugs? Is he drunk? Is he off his meds? Has he got some cognitive disease of some kind? And, you know, anyone with an ounce of common sense would know in, ahead of time that if they are going to say anything like that and they have a syndicated cartoon in the Washington Post, they're going to lose it. And, you know, he's going to – He's. Would it, why did he – if he knew what he was doing, if he wasn't, you know, um, uh, drunk or on drugs or off his meds, why would he, in a you know, in a ninety-minute monologue, torch a career he's painstakingly built up over God knows twenty-five years and which is worth, you know, seven figures a year to him? It just seemed bizarre and incomprehensible, and I just can't get my head around it. <laughs> Well, a few things on that. Um, one is the the idea that he you said to me, Mayor, maybe he was drunk. Uh, he did he did have a, an illness, a strange illness, years ago, where he he lost his voice and wasn't able to speak and had to retrain and relearn to speak and actually came out with a better, deeper voice. But he had to sort of manually learn to speak again. So sometimes, yeah, because yeah, it did sound a bit odd. I thought in places, maybe that's why. Yeah, his voice sometimes may sound strange because of that. So I should point that out. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out a few things there. He said on Twitter, he's even asked, I think today, what's the first rule of persuasion? And someone's replied, attention is influence. And he's replied with a bullseye emoji. So attention is influence. So he'll have some scheme, knowing Scott Adams, it may be misguided still, but he'll have some scheme where he's trying to get attention, which he's achieved, and then he'll do something with it. And he, I believe he has paid the price of his column, of his Dilbert, you know, the cancellation. And it's not that much of a price because... He doesn't get paid very much for Dilbert appearing in all these newspapers he's revealed. You know, he's got a lot of money already. He might get a new interest from this. So I think he's I think he's decided to pay the price of cancellation. To what end, I don't know yet. But he has said that this is fair. Someone replied, after hearing his clarification of the clip, Scott's right. This is a black guy as well. But the way he expressed his point wasn't smart because people are stupid and can't sense hyperbole. People want to be recreationally offended. It's easy to clip the stream, making him seem racist. And he's written fair. But if that is fair, then sort of, you know, well, yeah, why couldn't he predict that that was obviously going to happen? But he obviously must have. Which part he's predicted and which part he hasn't, I don't know, because he sort of claims to be a kind of, he gives out the vibe of being a master who predicts everything and, and he's manipulating your attention. But as for the identifying as black part, he said, I've lost three careers to direct racism so far, Crocker Bank, Pacific Bell, and cartooning. This is because his job said to him explicitly, you can't be promoted because you're white. And in the second case, a white man. And he says, all three were perpetuated by white people for their own gain, because it was white people telling him this. No black person has ever discriminated against me. That's partly why I identified as black for several years. So, and then he added white people in the media. That doesn't make sense. Well, he's saying that he wanted to just be black because he's like, I'm, I'm out of this white game. If you can identify as black, I guess he was saying, I'd rather be but black. I don't... Then I he don't says, think a black person's ever discriminated against me, but I don't identify as black as a consequence. No, that, perhaps that's that part. a weird leap to make. Yeah, it seems a satirical <laughs> leap. But then he says, white people in the media are also the main source of worsening race relations. And Musk sort of double agreed with that point, didn't he? And Musk has said, white, the media should stop being racist. They used to be racist against non-white people. Now they're racist against white people and Asians. Maybe they should stop being racist. So Musk sort of agreed. Yeah, you sort of listening to this, you know, his... Um, response to being cancelled you kind of think you're in a hole mate stop digging you're just making it worse i think my 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 read of this is that he's probably on the spectrum um 
and uh, Are you mental health he, shaming or mental? You're saying he's, he's no, no, I, it's not not shaming. No, no, no. I think this is this is this is a, this is a, this was this is a good excuse, and this is the excuse he should have wheeled out. Should have produced a diagnosis of autism. You know, it, it feels that way. You know, he's sort of he's saying he, he clearly, as you say, he he didn't intend it to be taken at face value. Although he didn't make it obvious that he didn't intend it to be taken at face value, he thought he was making a point. He was engaging in hyperbole, but he was being deliberately quite coy about whether he was in earnest or not. He was making these leaps in order to kind of, so it was kind of like his his attempt at humor, but also he wanted to contribute to a debate and make some actual points about the hypocrisy of white anti-racist liberals. But he just did it in such a tin-eared, ham-fisted way. It's all just exploded and his career is now burnt to the ground. And the reason I say this is because um, at the Free Speech Union, we quite often come across people who are on the spectrum and that's why they've got into trouble. They've kind of, they've got, they've kind of, they haven't quite understood, you know, how to communicate. They've tried to say something funny or they've tried to do something satirical and they haven't realized how it's likely to be seen because they're, Autism makes it difficult for them to put themselves in somebody else's place and imagine how they're going to come across. That's one of the kind of hallmarks of autistic people. And it feels that way to me. That, that's what's gone wrong here. That's the explanation. And, and it, it's actually, I think, I think it, you can make a kind of good argument that, that there's something discriminatory about all these kind of woke speech codes and unwritten blasphemy laws is that you know they they are actually discriminatory against the the neuroatypical people i mean if you are on the spectrum it's really hard to understand what these unwritten rules are really good at understanding written rules but unwritten ones not so much and you know they don't pick up on these subtle kind of um, signals in normal human communication and they're not very good at kind of knowing how their uh, communication is going to be interpreted either because they don't really understand uh, that nuance of kind of tone of voice and body language and how it all creates an impression and contributes to how meaning is is constructed um but i think i think that 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 should have been the argument he made he should have said crikey i, I was intending to make a satirical point i obviously got it wrong um it's because i'm on the spectrum here's my certificate but you know um in defense of um the neurotypical people we often get these things wrong and I'd plead with you to be a little more tolerant and understanding and not just, you know, cancel us because we sometimes mess up because of our disability. That to me would have been a better defense. Interesting. The autism <laughs> defense. Um, so you, you decide listeners is incidentally, Nick, I thought of, I thought of, I thought of producing that defense for myself back in 2018 <laughs> when I got canceled. Well, many would believe you. I mean, I think I could have a decent stab as well. I think several of us could have a stab at that defense. And, and, and it, it didn't occur to me until actually uh, someone who was on my side, an old friend who was clearly sympathetic and felt for me said, Toby, it's obvious to me why you said these idiotic, sophomoric, offensive things, you know, on Twitter going back 10, 15 years. It's because you're on the spectrum. 
you were trying to be funny. You would, you know, these these were jokes which you thought people would get and would make people like you and laugh, but actually, um, uh, you just completely misjudged your audience, um, and because you're on the spectrum, why don't you tell people that? And I, I thought for, and I, that's when I started to think, crikey, maybe that, 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 there might be something in that. You know, maybe I am on the spectrum, <laughs> and uh, maybe that would that work? You know, <laughs> instead of apologising, I'd just say, hey. You know what? What about my minority? I'm a victim here too. I'm neuroatypical. I didn't know that these things would be so offensive. Yeah, Uh, but in the end, I thought it would. It would. um, It would. uh, I I don't know. I. I, I, It felt like it would be dishonest. I I, I didn't think I could really, um, without a diagnosis, you know, credibly claim or honestly claim that 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 was the reason. I I would have said you're not on the spectrum if I hadn't seen your two a.m. messages about curly inverted commas. And I started, your obsession with punctuation, <laughs> Toby has an obsession with punctuation and, and correcting small things, which obviously is brilliant as a journalist and very diligent, but does border on, and it's not for me to say, but I mean, you know, there's, there is an argument. I, my wife could give you some other examples too. There is something going on there. It's, like, it's not not autistic. I mean, it's like, I mean, look, we've all got our things. Look, someone once said to me, I calmed down a lot. I actually considered going for a test to see if I had Asperger's once. I went to the first stage of it and then I got a job and I couldn't go to the other stage. And so I never found out. But then I said to myself, well, no, Nick, you understand humor and nuance very well. So you can't be, but then it's quite a strange thing to be debating in your head already. Maybe that's a bit Asperger's already. (laughs) So I don't think I do have it, but um, I do think you have it. But no, I think we're both. (laughs) Anyway, a a guy I know once said to me, and this calmed me down a bit. He said, you're a bloke. All blokes are like that. So basically his theory was all blokes are autistic. I think yeah. I think I think there's it's a kind of it's a it's a there's a thin line for being between being hyper masculine and being and being autistic. Yeah, basically all I comedians think probably overlap. Well. All comedians <laughs> and actually are autistic. and actually all, all, that's the, obviously the incidence of autism is far far higher amongst men than it is amongst women. Yeah, and we're not in any way insulting the uh, autistic community who, are, let's face it, are my target audience. But I we are saying that there is, yeah, people there is a spectrum. A lot of men are like this. We catalogue things like music and films and we collect things. And we're just, yeah, there's a spectrum and and Toby's far into it. (laughs) And uh, and so was the poor 14-year-old kid who dirtied the Yes. And so, yeah, exactly. He was another victim of this. So, yeah, there is a genuine point there. So listeners will have to decide, is Scott Adams a genius influencer or just an autistic victim? Yeah, and I think it is. I think it's a good argument against a proliferation of hard to understand speech codes, particularly in the workplace, but also at universities, whether written down or not, is that if you are neuroatypical, if you're on the spectrum, mastering all those codes, both written and unwritten, is incredibly hard. I mean, you're essentially creating an exclusionary environment for the neuroatypical. Most current universities with their unbelievably complex labyrinth of tripwires um, uh, that the woke are constantly kind of putting up makes it a very unwelcoming environment if you're <laughs> a bit spectrum. Yeah, and those are people who just happen to have high verbal IQs. They have a high IQ in a certain area. They're kind of useless in society, but they can understand these kind of nuances. Weirdly, a lot of it, a lot of it comes out of tech companies where the engineers are probably on the spectrum, but the sort of people who sort of end up in these jobs useless you know, the people that Elon Musk ends up sacking, they're all sort of ultra woke and concerned about speech codes rather than actual yeah. coding, which is the real work. So yeah, quite interesting. All right. 
Do you want to do our advert, Toby? We've only we've only got one advert this week, which is quite extraordinary considering how well this podcast is doing. Uh, our last podcast did um, uh, about each podcast seems to get ten percent more people, more listeners, more downloads than the previous one. So we're really on a fast upward trajectory. Um, we're basically a rocket, um, and uh, so I can't understand why we've only got one ad this week. Do get in touch at thedailyskeptic at gmail.com if you want to advertise on this podcast. Um, So this is an ad for Thor, our most loyal sponsor. In 1948, Winston Churchill said, paraphrasing Santana, I think it's Santana, Santayana, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. In 2012, Christine Paris said, Thor demonstrates high professional standards to help his clients achieve their greatest potential. He went above and beyond to ensure his schedule aligned with mine, regardless of time zone differences. Thor is consistent, dependable, and accurate in carrying out his responsibilities to a successful conclusion. The bottom line, Thor is a preeminent authority in his field. If you have an opportunity to connect with him and learn from him, you would be wise to capitalize on that opportunity. Christine was VP of Regulatory Compliance at Asherant Miami when she wrote that. In 1898, Churchill again, after cavalry charging with the 21st Lancers, remarked, nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. If you'd like to hear why a Miami cabbie threatened to shoot Thor with a taser en route to meet Christine, connect with him at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt and mention tasers. Even if you don't want to hear Thor's taser tale, act today because, quote, success is not final, failure is not final, it is the courage to continue that counts, unquote. Winston again. Connect with Thor on linkedin.com forward slash in slash Thor Holt and thorholt.substack.com. All right, now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Dr. Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic, and we've got some great stories this week. I always say that, but they are particularly good this week. Firstly, you'll have heard this one, lab leak, most likely origin of COVID-19 virus. Who knew? But it's a little bit more complicated, Will, and I've read your article on it, and I'm still a bit confused. Right. Well, yes. In a way, it's not that complicated, Nick, fortunately. It's that a an, an agency, the Department of Energy, actually the intelligence arm of the Department of Energy in the US, so a government department, has changed its assessment uh, to say that it now thinks that it was most likely that the COVID-19 virus originated as a lab leak, leak from a lab in, uh, in Wuhan. China. Um, it's the it's the second agency to come to that conclusion, the intelligence agency in the US, um, but it's only come to it with low confidence. The FBI is the other one. Uh, it came to it, uh, that, that assessment uh, last year, it came, uh, to 2021 actually, and it, um, and it came to it with moderate confidence and we're told that they came to it for different reasons. So um, this has reignited this story, and it's uh, been top headline. It was uh, yesterday and the day before. So um, major story. It's not anything that we don't know, of course, Nick. We already know uh, that that the the virus looks engineered. Uh, That's been known by those of us um, not slaves to the mainstream narrative. Uh, since uh, since very early on, so uh, so not news there. Good to see more intelligence agencies, uh, more uh, people uh, from government departments uh, saying this and uh, and backing up this theory. But still, the majority of the 
intelligence agencies in the US still either say they're undecided or think it's more likely to be natural. So it's not it's not it's not as though the US government is now coming down clearly and unequivocally on the side of a lab leak. Um, and the cynic might note the timing uh, has coincided with when China is looking to be backing uh, Russia with lethal aid. And and already we've seen this information, uh, this this change from the Department of Energy uh, being used as part of the, the rhetoric and the pressure on China. So you might wonder about the motives. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a change, but I don't think it's quite as big. And, and the other thing to say, Nick, actually, is that there's, they haven't released the report that's based on. It's not clear that there's any new information. It's clearly not, nothing definitive. It's not like they're sitting on, or, or it's not, or at least if they are sitting on, um, on information that is definitive one way or the other, they're certainly uh, not telling us about it. And it's it's not based on this big revelation uh, as though the US government is, is coming down on it. So it's, it's not quite as, as sensational as, might, as some uh, news agencies might uh, be giving the impression, but it's certainly being used to increase pressure on China, which who knows, maybe that was the point. Yeah, and it's been very f- fun to watch The Guardian and people like that update their stories from... COVID lab conspiracy is far right conspiracy to, okay, it's probably true to, okay, it's definitely true, which has been quite amusing. Yeah, yeah, this was a conspiracy theory back when Trump was saying it, um, largely, I we imagine, because because Trump was saying it, and it has uh, very much shifted to being something that they've had to uh, eat humble pie over and delete their fact checks. Yeah. All right, well, let's go on to this one then, very much related. Stroke consultations go up by 25% since the vaccine rollout. Yep, so this was a story that we published uh, just this morning, in fact, that Amanuensis, our, uh, our anonymous uh, contributor who was a uh, who was f- formerly a senior government scientist and academic, uh, and he writes uh, many uh, excellent detailed articles on analysing government data. And this one has dug into the data from the NHS for, and this one is about uh, consultations, NHS consultations for stroke. Stroke, of course, resulting from uh, clotting uh, in the in the brain. And he has shown that the the number of consultations for stroke uh, stayed around were stayed at a pretty level rate, and they even said the level rate during 2020, which was the first pandemic year, of course. But then once the vaccines were rolled out in 2021, there's this really obvious and sudden 25% increase in consultations for stroke. I mean, really, um, you can see the graph on the website, uh, really quite remarkable. And obviously, this is this is, isn't proof of, of cause of anything. But uh, like so much of the data, it's certainly, um, it, it's certainly something that needs looking into, because it's certainly indicative of a possible problem. All right. Well, I think we've done enough probably on vaccines for today. All very interesting, though. Go to dailyskeptic.org. And should we move on to climate and Greta Thunberg protests against wind farms didn't expect that but the real the point was she was sort of asking who will think about the reindeer that would seem to be the vibe will yeah yeah very bizarre story one that uh, needs a double take really that uh, to see that Greta Thunberg was uh, protesting against wind turbines and wind farms in Norway, uh, protesting at the government offices. And it is because she has recently become um, even more woke than she was before. She seems to have been taken in by all of the uh, leftist and uh, progressive fads. And one of them is uh, respect for indigenous people, and it seems respect for reindeer. And she says that 
uh, climate action mustn't come at the expense of people, she says, which is a bit of a revelation. We thought that was the, the, the point of, uh, of net zero was to come at the expense of people. Um, or this says certainly often seems that way. And, they know, and she's never given an indication of caring about that before. Uh, but there it is, wind farms on land that are used by traditional Norwegians to uh, to look after their reindeer. It distresses the reindeer, apparently, and disrupts their practices. You, you might have thought there might be other, possibly more pressing effects on human well-being that the drastic reduction of our extremely efficient energy sources, fossil fuel sources, might have, such as the development and the aspirations and needs uh, for billions of uh, poorer people in the developing world, that that might also come into into the equation of whether or not certain climate policies are a good idea. But uh, of course, that doesn't that doesn't seem to feature just herdsmen with their reindeer. It seems, Nick. <laughs> yeah, and you talked about reindeer mental health in the piece. Yeah, and there's a, there's a great point. What about the people in the developing world? And what about people in the Western world? I mean, what about the indigenous people of England who like to eat roast beef, not the bugs? I mean, you know, why, when did we suddenly start caring about people instead of the climate? Yeah, that, that's that's the problem. It's so strange, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. It took me a while to understand what was going on as I was reading it. But yes, she's, she's definitely got taken in. But of course, it's, um, it's only... Uh, particular kinds of caring about people, uh, usually anything that involves being traditional and and nothing to do with industry and nasty evil capitalism. You know, that's the if we're looking for logic in it, uh, which is often a silly thing to do. But if you are looking for logic into it, that I guess is the log- so-called logic that's going on there. Right. That's yeah, the very generous definition of logic. So let's move on to this chilling story. So a poll shows that half of Britain support Tony Blair's proposal for a national digital ID card. He never gives up, does he, on this blooming ID card? He's been going on since the 90s. Stop, leave us alone, Tony. But he won't, Will. No, he won't. We, we thought <laughs> with it that this was killed, died 30 years ago. Um, but no, here it is back, hot off the heels of vaccine passports and the growth of digital surveillance. Uh, we have Tony Blair joining forces with his erstwhile nemesis, William Hague, to suggest that the government should fast-track uh, putting in place these digital ID for accessing public services and health and, you know, everything really. I mean, starting with public services, but that's never where they intend to finish, is it? But stressing that they won't involve a, a card, because that's obviously the thing that people worry about with the digital ID, that there won't be a digital ID card, because, you know, technology's moved on <laughs> right. now. Don't so. worry, it'll just be under your skin. Exactly. Yeah, it'll be a chip, a microchip. No, they haven't. They haven't said that yet. Obviously, the, the, not not appreciating that the issue with ID cards um, and digital ID isn't isn't whether or not you have to carry a card. It's the surveillance and invasion of privacy uh, that it that it entails. And of course, none of these things have, have been addressed. So the disturbing thing was that not just that they're proposing it, but that uh, YouGov. So you know, YouGov need to take it with a pinch of salt. Always finds more support than is really believable for woke and uh, so-called progressive ideas. But anyway, it's a YouGov poll, and it found that a a disturbing, chilling, in fact, uh, 54% of the respondents, uh, who they claim are representative of the UK population, were supportive, either strongly or somewhat supportive, of this proposal, and only 27% opposed to it, with 18% don't knows. Uh, Let's hope that this really is as unrepresentative as as we suspect YouGov is, because... um, that is frightening. Fortunately, the government has so far said that it has no plans uh, for such an ID, but 
haven't we heard that phrase far too often um, in recent years? Things that in the pandemic they had no plans for uh, would become a reality within weeks. So, so it's a bit bit disturbing, really, to to hear that so many of our fellow citizens don't understand the dangers um, of putting all your ID onto and connecting it all to a government computer database. Yes, and it's very much the ID part, not the card part, as you said. And the no plans thing reminds me of Nadim Zahawi, founder, of course, of YouGov, you know, saying we have no plans for COVID passports. Then they started to push them through. What I want to know is if they phrase the question, do you want Tony Blair to introduce an ID card? I think it would be a much lower response because he's a pretty widely hated figure in the country now. Some still like him, but I doubt the question was phrased like that, was it? That's right. Yeah, I guess the the uh, the heading may have been a bit slightly confusing in that because the idea was the same. I don't think the people in the poll were asked were they specifically were keen on Tony Blair's digital ID. No. Yeah, we would see it drop significantly, I think. But let's move on to another very interesting one. University of North Carolina bans diversity, equity, and inclusion statements in an anti woke backlash. Some good news, perhaps. Yeah, this is brilliant. The University of North Carolina is showing the way with this ban on statements of DEI, as they call them um, in the States, diversity, equity and inclusion, um, or woke, as we call them in the sceptical world. It's, it's, it's good to see some robust response to this. And it makes you and it makes you realise, and when you see some of the things that they do in, in America in particular, with in Florida with uh, DeSantis and, um, and with their campaigns against uh, to ban critical race theory and the teaching of various things in schools, you really realise how much more robust an actually conservative government could be against a lot of this this wokery. We kind of get used to the idea that that the, the government just being a passive a passive observer of all this wokery going on around it in the public sector, of course, and not just in the private sector, as the you know, and just occasionally saying something negative about it, you know, just criticising it. Uh, but actually, there are things that they could do, and so you wonder why th- th- there aren't more moves to ban these things, like the University of North Carolina is uh, banning them on the grounds that it should be that it should be based on merit and that race should not be taken into account for which is obviously something that we would agree with but if if a university in north carolina can can ban these things then why aren't more governments uh, looking at such moves to actually deal with this problem because it's becoming a big problem isn't it nick yeah well like you say it's very frustrating our politicians can't do anything about it they can't control their own departments although america is a bit different they have the first amendment they have states like florida they have certain people who are like DeSantis, who are more interested in preserving freedoms. But I did notice North Carolina's governor is a Democrat, so that doesn't seem to even be relevant. The university just seems to have decided it pretty unilaterally, from what I can tell. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it is just the university; it's just one university. So we'd have to hope to see that it spreads, and hopefully this will be the start of something. But we, I would like to see it start to become a legislative movement, really. Um, this and in other areas, we need to we need to really start taking this seriously, this threat seriously, because it's it's just going out of control, really. Absolutely. All right, let's end on this one. Very much a personal interest in this one for me, which is censors use AI to target podcasts. And this came from Brett Swanson. And there was this absurd thing where, you know, the the lefty regime, whatever you want to call it, are using fact checkers like Snopes, lol, and uh, fact checkers in inverted commas. And what they found is they went through podcasts using AI to save time, obviously, because it's far too much to go through. So we're very concerned that podcasts were telling too much truth, is my take on it, during things like the pandemic. And they said that conservative podcasters were 11 times more likely than liberal podcasters to share claims fact-checked as false or unsubstantiated. And of course, they also use a loose definition of conservative because they things like the Dark Horse podcast with known lefty 
Brett Weinstein counts as conservative in their world. So it's basically anything they don't like, they're going through getting bots to censor and if they, and then calling things conservative that aren't. And that's my take, Will. What, what do you think? Yep, yep. So the podcasts, um, as the, as censorship has ramped up on, on alternative uh, news outlets and websites in the last few years, podcasts have been recognised uh, by the censors as a place where people can continue to um, say their dangerous off-narrative views. And the difficulty they've had has been a technical one, which is that podcasts are often hours long um, and they're audio files. And so they've, they've so that the difficulty they've had is they haven't been able they haven't been able to find the the off-narrative truths and uh, that's not how they call what how they see them obviously and therefore be able to uh, say when something is um, is wrong and be able to do some routine uh, censoring but they've now developed AI which can which can go through the hours of podcasts and find the offending facts and and, and will therefore give them the ability um, to uh, to censor them um, in the way that we've become accustomed to with uh, with text uh, based sites so yeah dist- disturbing um disturbing development um and uh, but it's just it's just part of what we're get up against isn't it nick uh we just need to keep on pushing back and uh and convincing people um in positions of power that uh that they should respect freedom of speech and that uh, and that's as we were saying at the beginning of this section with the lab leak theory that so often what this supposed misinformation turns out to either be true or contain elements of truth and and shouldn't and therefore shouldn't be suppressed yeah right well everything will have said today will be run through a woke ai bot so it may be very different by the time you hear it but imagine that woke ai bots controlling podcasts about as dystopian as it gets but like you say that's what we're up against that's what these people are trying to do it's disgusting, but there it is. The Weekly Skeptic will keep on fighting it. And we'll we'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Nick. All right. That was Will. Now let's go to everyone's favorite section. It's Peak Woke. Thought we'd do a fairly quick Peak Woke this week, Toby, because you're up against time pressure. As always, you've got so many things going on. And I'm just going to nominate one, which is the James Bond thing, which I wrote about for the Daily Skeptic which is that Ian Fleming's James Bond novels have been destroyed by sensitivity readers. And it's a bit different to the role of Darwin in that some of it is actual racial language that wouldn't necessarily be the hill to die on racial terms that Fleming used that, you know, okay, I'm not going to lose too much sleep about them being taken out perhaps. But there are also other changes where they just destroyed the language. So here's one where the original passage read, Bond could hear the audience panting and grunting like pigs at the trough. He felt his own hands gripping the tablecloth. His mouth was dry and the, the pig's bits taken out and they replaced it with Bond could sense the electric tension in the room. I mean, the electric tension, it was like a six former. It's embarrassing. It's like, imagine that you've written these novels and you've got, you've got pigs grunting and you use electric tension. You're like, these people are just morons replacing good descriptive passages with idiotic cliches. Yeah, it was um, shocking. And in a way, actually, I, I was more upset, more annoyed by the um, desecration of Bond than I was of Dahl. Um, what, what, I mean, it's hard to know exactly what these wokesters think they're up to. I mean, on the one hand, you know, they like to claim that the recent past was a racist hellscape. Um, you know, uh, Britain was, uh, because of its legacy of empire and colonialism, steeped in racism. Um, and yet they then take these books produced in the recent past and try and remove all trace 
of racism. It's like, wh- why are you doing that? Either, either, either the recent past was a racist hellscape or it wasn't. How can you simultaneously say it was and then try and eliminate all the evidence that it was by making his language, you know, more anodyne? And the other aspect of this is, you know, if you are a social justice warrior, presumably, you know, it helps your cause if people read books by, you know, heavy drinking, patrician, womanizing, old Etonian toffs um, and are offended by them. I mean, why would you want to smooth off the rough edges of these hard drinking, patrician, womanizing, old Etonian toffs? It's like they're acting as spin doctors for the Old Etonian Association, which seems to be at odds with their kind of social justice agenda. And and the other the other final point on this, Nick, you know, the morality here is all kind of skew if, you know, it, they're prioritizing the wrong things. I mean, Bond was essentially, you know, um, a uh, murderous sociopath. Um, you know, he has very few pangs of conscience in the course of the novels, very occasionally, but not very often. Um, and, uh, you know, why are you making him somehow more morally acceptable by turning him into a non-sexist, non-racist, murderous, homicidal sociopath? It's kind of bonkers. Yeah, good point. I like the point about the woke trying to prove that the past was really racist, but they've got no data left. All the evidence is gone. So like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, where? Yeah. It seems fine. It seems like it was a utopia to me. <laughs> and you can make, you make the same argument about statues, you know, that they want to claim that the recent past was riddled with racism and at the same time remove any statues and monuments that that portray any tolerance of racism in the past or any connection to the slave trade. It's like, you know, why are you trying to airbrush history and at the same time claim our history is something we should be ashamed of? Either we should be ashamed of it, in which case leave it as it is in all its technical horror, or pretend it wasn't and airbrush it. It's just kind of, what are they thinking? I suppose it's all about, you know, it's a brutal exercise of power, isn't it? Like the party in 1984 saying, we can do whatever we like, including change the past because we're that powerful. Don't mess with us. Yeah. Um, Although Mog uh, yeah, was, so my, my, can I just quickly say, Mog yeah. was slightly uh, more sort of lefty on the point, wasn't he? He was a bit more open to it on the program. And he made a strange, he talked about dam busters and he made a sort of unintentionally funny bit. He went, in dam busters, they changed the name of the dog to Digger. And I thought that was a good change. <laughs> Did you remember that on the, on the show? I started talking about yeah, Digger yeah. and you thought, maybe don't even say Digger, Jacob, because it's... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway. Well, it was Stephen Pound, rather cheekily, the the ex-Labour MP who was one of the panellists. Um, he did say, uh, oh, the damn buster, Sam, what was the dog called again, Jacob? What was the dog called? <laughs> what was the dog called, Jacob? Trying to get him to say the word. Right. As trying to get us cancelled like from Ofcom. Of dare. Yeah, trying to get as, him cancelled on this first show. the studio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Do you have a um, One peak woke up. Well, if we're gonna, I think if we're going to confine ourselves to just one each because we are strapped for time, um, I, I thought this was interesting. I don't know if it quite falls into the woke category, but it's kind of woke adjacent. But this um, actress called Jessica Barden, who's from a northern working class background, um, she complained that Emma Corrin, um, upper middle class, privately educated British actress who appears in The Crown, she said that she wanted to play a feisty, gritty British working class character. She was fed up with playing, you know, posh characters. And Jessica Barden objected and said this was cultural tourism and it would be taking work from actors, you know, with uh, a working class heritage like her. And it was exactly the same arguments that are made against, you know, 
um, cis actors playing trans characters or straight characters playing gay characters. And I'd never heard it extended to, you know, class in this way. And it did strike me almost as a sort of um, reducto ad absurdum of objections to, you know, actors culturally appropriating the experiences um, that they haven't themselves had. I mean, it always sounds like a silly argument because, you know, it's called acting. But this seemed like the kind of ultimate expression of that silliness to to claim that if you're posh, you shouldn't be able to play working class characters. Yes, that is where it was always leading. Absolutely insane. Probably the Bond one wins, but and the other one get but you know, it's up to the listener to decide. Yeah, I think yeah. Yeah, so Bond that'd probably wins. get weak poke. But we are we were it was fair enough. We were pressed for time. Toby, do you want to do our everyone's other favourite section? I'll step out and you can uh, bring in our our, our favourite guest. Yes, so um, I'm delighted to be able to welcome um, Dr. Jordan Peterson back to the show. Um, he um, uh, wasn't with us last week because um, he wasn't terribly well, and he hasn't made a complete recovery. Um, so do cut him some slack. But nonetheless, in spite of the fact that he's still slightly ailing, he has agreed to come back and um, be our agony aunt. Um, so I'm going to ask the yes, um, I, first... I'd just like to add, I, I ate a, a parsnip and I, I couldn't sleep for six days and I had to go to a, a Russian hospital and, and it was a bloody nightmare. I was seeing visions of Satan. So never eat vegetables. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Peterson. So um, our first um, query today is from a listener called Chris. And he says, my birthday is fast approaching and I'm unsure what arrangements to make about going out for dinner. My oldest friend's girlfriend is very vocal about her woke views, constantly talking about climate change, how sex is a spectrum and how many trans friends she has. My other friends are GB news watching, weekly skeptic listening, all round good eggs. Dr. Peterson, what do I do? Well, turns out to be a pretty complicated question because... Well, we all have friends and it's it's good. You need friends and family and that's how we build communities and keep our rooms clean. But at the same time, it's very important to tell the truth. And this is one of my rules in my 12 Rules for Life and the sequel coming out, 12 More Rules for Life. And there's another book in the works called 12 More Rules for Life after that. And that when I talk about Carl Jung for 600 pages, anyways... When we have friends who don't agree with us, we have to still tell the truth and stand up straight. So my advice would be to tell them they're wrong at the birthday party and stand up straight and say, you're bloody wrong. And there's only two sexes at most. And <laughs> there may only, only be one, according to Jean Piaget, but that's very complicated and we can't get into that now. But Stand up with your back straight and your room incredibly clean and ideally eating only meat. That goes without saying. And simply confront your friend because we can't live in a world of lies and delusions. So I'm afraid you simply have to confront your friends, lose all your friends and end up in a Russian hospital. But ultimately, it will be worth it. So I hope that was helpful. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. So um, our final query tonight is from um, David. I am a gay man with a vagina, and I live with another gay man with a vagina. It's been suggested that we are, in fact, two very confused lesbians. Could you clarify if we are confused lesbians or if we are being victimized due to our vegan diet and lack of Russian art in our apartment? Well, I get this question a lot, and <laughs> they both have vaginas, so... 
of course you're bloody women. Grow up, man. Well, not man, because it's a bloody woman. This is a question from lesbians who are being erased by the trans movement, and it makes me so sad and reminds me of the men working on the infrastructure and <laughs> making the internet stay on, and they, they don't get thanked, and they're wearing high-vis jackets, and they're working at night. Anyways, the point is, these are obviously two women living together, which is bad enough in itself because, well, not to try and uh, denigrate lesbians because we, we need lesbians to, uh, you know, occasionally appear in, in pornographic films that I haven't watched. But the point is, we need the nuclear family. So it's already quite dangerous being a lesbian because the birth rates are catastrophically low and nobody talks about it except me and bloody Elon Musk. Anyways, so... These are clearly two women who should be finding husbands and suppressing their lesbian urges if possible. And it's time to grow up, start families, and use your vaginas for what they were meant for, which is having children. How about that? Hey. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. (laughs) (laughs) Typically trenchant advice. I hope you can come back next week and... Uh, lend an ear to some of the problems of our other listeners. And if you have any problems for Dr. Peterson, please send them to thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. And we'll pick the best ones. And hopefully he'll be with us next week to answer some of your queries. Um, so, Nick, um, what should we um, – any, any, any snippets from reviews praising you and reluctantly acknowledging that I have a purpose, but I'm just not very entertaining? <laughs> Well, yeah, let me have a quick look, Toby. And it was great to hear from Dr. Peterson again. So I don't, I don't condone all of his views. Some of them were a bit too conservative for me. But, you know, he always has a reason for what he, what he thinks. Um, yeah, this is a controversial one, Toby. Maybe I shouldn't read this one out. But it says, as fun as old London calling was. <laughs> maybe we should delete that. <laughs> Funny wide spectrum of news snippets, highlights from Daily Skeptic. Toby is Toby. And Nick sounds like a good man. So that is that a good review? It's, it's sort of good, isn't it? Um, someone wrote Amusing Ignorance, which quite annoyed me, and they gave it four stars. The pair of them have never heard of the Jesuits, who were the originators of the phrase, give me the child. Apart from that little oddity, in this week's episode, it's as good as ever. Of course, we've heard of the Jesuits. I've heard of the Jesuits? <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Ridiculous. But, um, and then I think the rest, of them I've actually, the rest of them I've actually read out before, but you send in your reviews as always give it five stars not four and don't say we haven't heard of the jesuits but we thank you that person anyway for still saying it was as good as always but um always give it five stars and i just want to thank people for also giving my other podcast five stars well loads of people have come in giving it five stars some of them probably weekly skeptic fans so i thank you for that the current thing i missed an episode with andrew Doyle because i was ill and then he's gone off to america but um there will be exciting episodes coming out soon in the in the pipeline um Toby, anything you wanted to add? Oh, April 1st, our live show. Absolutely crucial. April 1st. We haven't actually yes, released tickets, but we're going to do that, aren't we? Yeah, and we know there's a train strike, um, but we're going to go ahead anyway because we think that if very few people turn up, that will be the perfect excuse. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you are coming from out of London and you need to get the train, um, why not make a weekend of it? Come up on the Friday. Um, come see us on the 1st, on the Saturday. Go home on the Sunday, and in that way, avoid the strike. Um, anyway, so yeah, we, I think tickets are going to go on sale. We hope on Friday. Um, if you want to buy tickets, keep checking 
the Daily Skeptic website. We're going to advertise the opportunity as soon as they, well, actually a few days before they become available, because apparently that's the way to really <laughs> gin up sales. Um, and then we're going to, we're hoping they'll go on sale this Friday. Yes, hopefully they'll go on sale Friday. And I do understand the concerns about rail strikes. It could be a problem, but someone's already emailed us saying, we've booked our accommodation. You better not cancel. So because of that one person, I can't find it in my heart to cancel. So what you always can do is get the mega bus, you can get the National Express, or you can also come down, as Toby says, make a weekend of it. And if you can't find anywhere to stay, there's always Toby's house because he lives in the shed now. So you could just stay in the main body of his house. He hasn't, I haven't checked that with Toby. but I think that the, the person who, wrote, who who emailed us to say, you can't cancel the show in spite of the train strikes because I've booked my accommodation and I would lose money if you cancelled the show. And if you do, not only will I come to London anyway, but I'll kidnap Nick and take him home with me. And that rather put the wind up you, I think. So now we can't cancel. Yeah. They said, I need to have the boy, Nick, as compensation. So yeah, that was... <laughs> I think I think this this could even be the same person that said in the reviews, um, I think Nick is warm and funny and wise and courageous and Toby is just Toby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Toby's Toby. Yeah. But you know, no, that's, that's not a bad thing to be. Um, you can come and see us both and probably Will. Uh, Will apparently didn't know about it, but I've told him now. So April 1st, I'm a bit worried about the train strike, but it could be a bit London-centric, but come along anyway. And It's the first of many, but definitely come to this one because if this one doesn't go well, it might not be the first of many. So they have to come to this one. And uh, Anything else, Toby? Yeah, well, I can say the bar's been set pretty high because um, James Dellingpole um, <sighs> last weekend... Uh, sold out the 900-seater uh, room at the Emmanuel Centre, which is where our show's going to be. Not only did he sell, you know, 800 tickets at £23 each, he then sold a further 100 VIP tickets uh, for something like £75 each. And the big perk, if you got a VIP ticket, was you got to get a, you got to have a selfie with James. So um, we're not as ambitious as that. Um, we've booked both the small venue and the large venue. So we may may end up in the smaller of the two venues. Um, and don't say all that tickets bit, are on sale. <laughs> all tickets are on sale for £17.50. And um, you don't have to be a VIP if you want a selfie with us. We'll be in the bar afterwards, um, hanging out and giving selfies away. Absolutely. Getting lashed and Yes, James has sold all those people, but does anyone seriously think the talent is on the same level as the talent on this podcast? I just, I'm not going to say, I mean, you know, that's all I'm going to say, you know, talent wise, we'll build it, Toby, don't worry. If you build it, they'll come. And, uh, we, when, when, I said, when I said to James, I was feeling a little bit anxious that um, we might not sell as many tickets as him. Um, uh, and I wondered if um, he felt at all competitive. And he said, did Mozart feel competitive with Salieri? So yeah, he's, I heard he's that. got the opposite view about the asymmetric distribution of talent. Well, I know, but I was thinking if James is Mozart, and nothing against James, but if James is Mozart, then I must be the person who invented music because just it's just not comparable <laughs> talent-wise, guys. So sorry, we, we like James, but it's just not, it's just not comparable. So um, <laughs> now they have to come. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll move up to the 1,800-seater Toby soon. We'll double James. Yeah, and we should point out that in addition to Will being there, Dr. Peterson will make a guest appearance that's we think, huge. at the end of the show. That is huge. So come yeah, come for that, huge. if nothing else. All right. Anything further, Toby, before we go? Uh, no, I think that's about it. But do not forget to go to the, the Daily Skeptic, uh, www.dailyskeptic.org. And please do donate if you can find it in your heart to give us something, however small, every little counts, what keeps us going. And um, yeah, if you're an advertiser, please get in touch about advertising on The Weekly Skeptic. And we'll see you all, every one of you, on April 1st. But until then, and until next week, stay sceptical. Stay sceptical. <laughs>